morning, everyone. My name is John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Center Point Fellowship Church. And I want to welcome you to this installment, this next installment in our series on Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, Genesis, and then Exodus. And the reason we picture uh, the cover on the, or the picture on the cover of your bulletin is of an exit sign is that's what Exodus means. It means the way out or how they got out, how the children of Israel got out of slavery in Egypt. How'd God lead them to that? Well, he called a man named Moses, and he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and they headed toward the promised land, the land that God had promised to give to their ancestor Abraham 500 years or more earlier. And so today, we're going to talk about the next exciting chapter in this uh, story, and that comes with the parting of the Red Sea. In fact, in your bulletin today, you'll find an outline where I'm headed this morning. The title of my message today is The Parting of the Red Sea. I work hard on these titles, okay? I can't tell you. Uh, but I don't need to say a lot more than that because that kind of is a description of, of uh, an important part of the story of the Exodus. You'll see today how it applies to us because when they came to the edge of the Red Sea, the children of Israel, the people led by Moses, God's prophet, God's leader for them, they still had to make a choice whether they're going to trust God or trust their circumstances. And today I want to talk with you about why it's important to trust God even when life gets scary. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today, that we can look at your word. I thank you that it is our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And Lord, today we want to learn how to practice our faith and trust you more. So Lord, I pray that you'll speak, you'll move me out of the way, say whatever you want said to us today. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Hey, the ushers are coming up and down the aisles. They have pens for you. If you need a pen, just raise your hand. They'll be glad to pass one to you. That way you can fill in the blanks. And take any notes you want. And I hope you do take some notes on this because there's some vital life application lessons that you and I need to make in this story. So starting with point one, God heard the cries of his people and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. This is kind of a summary. If you haven't been with us so far, that's what Exodus is all about. In fact, in Exodus 6, this is a little review here. God is speaking to Moses, God's man, who's going to be the one who leads the nation of Israel out of slavery. Here's what he said to them. He said to Moses, I have heard the groans of the people of Israel who are now slaves to the Egyptians, and I am well aware of my covenant with them. He's referring back to Genesis 15, where God had spoken to Abraham and said, your descendants are going to be enslaved enslaved in a foreign land for hundreds of years. At the end of that time, I will bring them out and bring them to this promised land. Therefore, God said to Moses, therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. The great acts of judgment have been covered the last few weeks. You can get online and watch any of these messages about all this. We talked about these things. There were 10 miraculous plagues sent upon the nation of Egypt. God instructed Moses to go and tell the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and to say, the God of the Hebrews who made a promise to their ancestor, Abraham, says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, who enjoyed the slave labor of millions of people, said, I will not let these people go. I don't know who God is, but I'm not giving them up without a fight. And so God brought the fight to him. Ten plagues that basically ruined the nation and brought Pharaoh to his knees were brought upon the Egyptians uh, and proved that God was superior to any of the gods the Egyptians worshipped. Egyptians worshiped the sun god, and so God just turned out the lights for three days. A darkness so thick you could feel it, and no one dared to move. Another god the Egyptians worshiped was a fertility goddess with the head of a frog. 
And so God allowed the land to be covered with frogs, millions and millions of them. And no matter, no matter how much they prayed to their frog-headed goddess, the frogs wouldn't leave. And so Pharaoh had to go to Moses and his brother Aaron and say, tell your God to make the frogs go away. So Moses and Aaron prayed to God, and the frogs didn't just disappear, they just died. And it says the whole land of Egypt was covered with a reek of heaps and heaps of rotting frogs. After that, there was a massive hailstorm and lightning storm. Any man or animal caught out in the fields was killed. Locusts came, devoured anything that wasn't destroyed by the hail. And finally, the tenth plague, the worst of all the plagues, the firstborn in every household died including the firstborn of Pharaoh himself. His own son, who was going to succeed him on the throne, died. And after that, Pharaoh had had enough. He said, get out. And God had made the Egyptians favorably disposed to the Israelites. So on their way out, they were grabbing jewelry and rings and money. And the Israelites could ask whatever they wanted, tea sets, candelabras, anything you want, just take it. And so they plundered the Egyptians on the way out. In one translation, it says that The Israelites marched out with their fists in the air like a conquering army. They marched right out the front gates of Egypt. Broad daylight. And they escaped slavery. Now there's a note here that's important because this leads us into the next twist in our story today. God led the Israelites out of slavery and into what seemed like a dead end. They marched out. They were blessed by all the Egyptians. They could take whatever they wanted, new suits of clothing, Anything, just take it, just go before we all die. And so they marched right out, and God led them into what seemed like a dead end. Here's how it happened. This is from Exodus 13 and 14. God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. They didn't take the main road just straight to the promised land. God had a plan here. And he guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. God's presence with them was in physical form. There was a pillar of cloud that extended up into the heavens. And if the Israelites wanted to know where they were supposed to go, they just followed the cloud. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they camped. They could even travel at night. And this was before electricity, before lights or flashlights. And they could travel at night because there was a glow from the cloud that lit up the whole countryside. And so they knew exactly where to go. And they would follow the cloud. Well, God led them. Uh, by day and by night and provided the light even so they could travel when nobody else could. And then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses, order the Israelites to turn back and camp between Migdal and the sea. Now none of us know where Migdal is, so you just got to trust me, it's by the sea, okay? (laughs) And God guided them to a place that was right next to the Red Sea. Now if you are escaping from an evil tyrant who's held you in slavery for years, who thinks nothing of murdering your children, which Pharaoh had ordered, then it would be a risky proposition on your way out to kind of wander around and then camp right next to a large body of water so that if Pharaoh changed his mind and came after you with his chariots, that you would have no way of escape, no plan of escape. Well, that's exactly what God led the Israelites to, that very situation. And here's why um, God said to Moses, order the Israelites to turn back and camp between Migdal and the sea, Because then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They're trapped in the wilderness and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So God had a plan. He wasn't going to take them straight where they thought they were supposed to go. He took them exactly where he wanted them to be. You know, a lot of times, I mean, there's the old joke of the reason it took the Israelites 
40 years wandering in the desert is because Moses was a man and he would never stop and ask for directions. Okay, well, that wasn't true. He was following the cloud and the cloud was taking him exactly where God wanted them to go. And so there's a, a, a life application for us here, for you and me. You and I have to trust that God's plans are bigger and better than our plans. Because this often happens in life. Where we set out and we're going to go one way with our lives, but God has a different plan. Happened in my life. If you go into my, if you come to my office, you'll see my undergraduate degree in engineering and my master's degree in divinity. Some of us in my office the week before last looking at those diplomas and going, what does this make you? I said, well, con- confused. Okay, that's what it makes me. No, it makes me somebody who's following the Lord. I set out with one direction in my life and the Lord had a different direction. Anybody else had this happen besides me? Where God changed your plans and gave you something better? Some hands going up. I'm telling you, if you follow the Lord, he is going to take you on a wonderful journey. The big thing he asks us is to trust that his plans are bigger and better than ours. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. The Israelites were going to find that out. Why didn't we just take the straight highway straight to the promised land? Why are we wandering over here? Well, because Pharaoh's going to think that you're trapped, and I've got a plan for Pharaoh, so you won't ever have to worry about him and his army chasing after you ever again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote this. Do not depend on your own understanding. Please underline that. Don't depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he'll show you which path to take. God was literally showing them which path to take. And it was not by their own understanding, because that would be the last place you would want to camp if you were trying to escape from Pharaoh to make sure he could never catch up with you. But God had bigger plans. God had bigger fish to fry. And you and I are going to have to ask ourselves, do we really trust that? Do I trust in God's leading or do I trust in my own understanding? Because my own understanding can be very limited. So can yours. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we really trusted God? Well, sure enough, everything God had said came true. This is point two. A few days after he'd freed the Israelites from slavery, Pharaoh changed his mind. He changed his mind. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and we've lost their services. I mean, you can imagine Pharaoh and his palace, the whole land is in ruins. He's just gotten back from burying his son and he's sitting in his throne ringing the bell for the butler to come and the butler doesn't show up. The butler left with the tea service. Took it all. And he's going, hey, wait a minute. And all his officials were going, hey, we got to get our own orange juice now. we got to iron our own clothes. I don't like this a bit. And they changed their minds. What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and lost all their services. So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready, and he took his army with him, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites, and they overtook them as they camped by the sea. Now God had just, now it might be stunning that after all these miraculous plagues had been upon them, that Pharaoh would have the nerve to chase after him again, but he did. And then what you would certainly expect is, well, the Israelites have just seen plague after plague brought upon, brought upon Pharaoh. And Pharaoh shaking his fist at God each time saying, I'm Pharaoh. I lead the Egyptians. I say who comes. I say who goes. And yet through locusts or flies or lice or frogs 
or the Nile turning to blood or even the firstborn in every household dying, God had proven over and over again he was mightier than Pharaoh and mightier than any of the Egyptian gods. And so you would think at least the Israelites, when they're camped there and they see Pharaoh coming, you'd think they would have bent over laughing going, oh, Pharaoh, you got no sense. I mean, I cannot believe you are tangling with God again. You coming back for more? Well, you just come on, Pharaoh. Our God is mighty, and he'll show you a thing or two. And that might be a reasonable, reasonable response, but that's not what happened at all. In fact, here's the note in your outline. When the Israelites saw Pharaoh pursuing them, they panicked, and they turned against Moses and against God. They threw Moses right under the bus, or right under the chariot, I guess would be the appropriate metaphor. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw them, Egyptians, this is from Exodus 14, coming at them, and they were totally afraid. They cried out in terror to God, and they said to Moses, weren't the cemeteries large enough in Egypt? You had to take us out here in the wilderness to die back in Egypt. Didn't we tell you this had happened? Didn't we tell you leave us alone in Egypt? We're better off as slaves in Egypt than as corpses in the wilderness. I mean, didn't we tell you? Didn't we tell you? And Moses spoke to the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and watch God do his work of salvation for you today. Take a good look at the Egyptians today if you're never going to see them again. God will fight for you, fight this battle for you. And you, you keep your mouths shut. And if you have a translation that says something a little bit different, I looked this up in the Hebrew and that's accurate. Keep your mouths shut. Here they're staring at the Red Sea. They're wearing brand new clothes. They got rings on their fingers. They're free for the first time in hundreds of years. Nobody ever even remembers life outside of slavery. They had marched out with fists in the air, defiant like a conquering army, right out of the gates, singing praises to God. And now it's a scary situation. Whoa, Moses, didn't we tell you we shouldn't have left? No, no, you didn't. Now keep your mouth shut and listen. The Lord is going to deliver you. He's delivered you 10 times already. Just wait and see what he's going to do now. There's a life application for you and me. We must choose to trust God rather than our circumstances. That's a life application for us, just as well as for them. I mean, can you imagine a people who had tons of freedom? They could worship any way they pleased now. People who had been materially blessed beyond their wildest dreams people who had seen God answer their prayers and hear their cries, and yet they wouldn't trust him. Can you imagine being a Christian in America? People have unimaginable freedoms. People have been blessed beyond their wildest dreams, beyond what most people never even dream of in the rest of the world. People who have seen children born because God answered their prayers. They, had their, they got their jobs. They found their spouse. They found all these things. And yet they get one diagnosis. They get one pink slip. And there's no God anymore because he hadn't done anything for me in the last 24 hours. And I quit. If everything's easy, if everything's prosperity, if it's all ice cream and cake, hey, you bet I'll believe in you, God. But you let any trouble come in my life, I'm out of here. Didn't we tell you we shouldn't have done that? Does this apply to us today? You better believe it does. We're just like these people. Blessed like crazy. I mean, these people were standing there. The pillar of cloud was still right in front of them. A physical manifestation of God's presence. And yet they were afraid of the chariots. 
We sit there and we thank God. We pray for a job and we get it. We pray for a house and he blesses us with a house and vacations and food and clothing and all kinds of things. Drive up to the house and we even remember, yeah, we prayed for this house. And yet one thing goes wrong in our life. Oh, God isn't real. I'm giving up on him. You just can't trust him. And God was going to teach them a lesson and teach the Egyptians a lesson. And y'all, we need to learn this lesson. Why does God have to keep proving himself over and over to us? Why are we so stubborn and stiff-necked and fearful? Now, some of you turned your outline already over. Turn it back, please. I want you to write something in at the bottom of the page. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. I did not put this in, and I don't know why. Uh, my seminary professors would just say, John, you've lost your mind. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Seven words, easy to memorize. We live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. Please write that in across the bottom. Would you say it with me? We live by faith, not by sight. One more time. We live by faith, not by sight. Now say it to the person next to you. We live by faith, not by sight. Now this is really hard to do. Faith means you trust that something's true even if the circumstances don't match what you're seeing, what you know to be true. What you're seeing doesn't match what you know to be true. God gave an object lesson in my life multiple times. He gave it to each of my children and to my wife. Um, With each of my sons and with my wife, I took them to a place called J.H. Ranch in California. And at this camp, uh, they do a marvelous job of teaching the Bible and biblical principles in your life. And they have one exercise. It's called a leap of faith where they have you climb up a telephone pole and jump off. Now, what's important about this, you need to know, is that you're harnessed in, and they have all kinds of, they demonstrate before you get up there, the harnesses and the strength of the rope, you're double, triple uh, tied in on this thing. There's no way for you to fall. Um, They show that the ropes can hold thousands of pounds. They even have one of their uh, staff members climb up who's as big or bigger than anybody else in the group, and he jumps off, and they catch him, and then they have people go up and try this, but um, you'll see the picture here. This is my son, Evan, climbing up this pole at this camp. At the very top, there's a little platform that's just slightly bigger than the top of the pole. And your job, when you get to the top, is to stand on top of it. And we can go to the next slide, please. Up there, you'll see him standing on top of this pole. And you can see there are wires stretched across where he's harnessed in. If he falls, nothing's going to happen to him. And out in front of him there, maybe you can make it out, there's a trapeze that after you get to the top and get your balance, they ask you to jump and grab the trapeze. And then you let go, and then they lower you safely down to earth. Now, before you start, they tell you, hey, you need to understand this. When you're at the top there, you're going to be afraid. But you need to remember what you're seeing isn't what's really happening. Because your eyes and your balance and everything else will tell you you're about to die. Okay? And if we go to the next slide, please, what you have to do is you have to trust that's not true, and so you jump. Now, I was like 10th or 12th in line. My son had gone. I took these pictures before I went. And then came my turn. And I climbed to the top, and I got up there, and it was no big deal. I am lying through my teeth, okay? (laughs) I had heard the expression before that your knees, when somebody's scared, their knees knock together. I'd always thought that was just an expression. It really happens when you're terrified, okay? My knees were shaking. My hands were shaking. I stood up on top of that pole. And I'm telling you, everything they said happened to me. 
I knew in my mind that rope was strong. They'd even pulled tension on it so I could tell. If I fell, I might fall four inches before, that sl- before the slack was gone. They took all the slack out of it to even give me courage. And I still was relying on my senses. All five senses were saying, John, this is the dumbest thing you've done yet. Get down from here. And I had to really concentrate, even close my eyes, and trust that what I knew was true was not matching up with what my circumstances were telling me. I hope you understand the parallel here. The Israelites are encamped by the sea. There's no way out. The Egyptians are coming with chariots. And God is saying, I got this. I got this. It's going to be okay. Trust me. I had seen people jump off that pole. I had watched these guys slowly lower them back to earth. I'd seen my own son go. And what a great dad. Son, you go first, okay? (laughs) It'll make a man out of you. (laughs) I was scared spitless. And here were the Israelites. They had seen all these miracles time after time after time. And yet they're still afraid? Yeah. Because they were trusting their circumstances more than they trusted the Lord. Now flip your outline over. A couple of verses you and I need to remember. Isaiah 41.10. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. You're going to see this metaphor over and over again in the Bible. God says, I am strong. I can uphold you with my victorious right hand. This was the same hand, he said earlier, that he had brought down with his fist on Pharaoh. And he would do it again. He'd done it ten times in a row, and yet the Israelites go, well, he can't make it eleven. You and I, God can rescue us. He can bring us through difficulty after difficulty. And now we get something else that happened at work or it happened at home. And oh my goodness, the sky is falling. God doesn't have any more power. God says, I'm not a God who just wound up the earth and left it spinning. And now I'm off in some other part of the cosmos. I might come back in a billion years. He's a God that's with us every day. He asks us to trust him. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul was discipling a young man named Timothy, and he said this, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I mean, fear can destroy our minds. You want to know what a spiritual warfare looks like? It looks like standing on top of that pole. That's spiritual warfare. Am I going to trust all the circumstances or am I going to trust the God who, died, who sent his son to die on the cross for me? The God who made me. I mean, it's one thing to sit here on Sunday morning and sing praises to the spirit of the living God and ask him to fall afresh on me, give me power. Oh, yeah, I love that. Well, let's see how this works on Tuesday. When the bills are due and the deadline comes. When you don't like what you hear, the message on the phone. Are we going to trust in God or trust in our circumstances? What's it going to be? And you and I have to determine whether we're going to walk by faith or walk by sight. The Israelites had to trust right then. Are you going to trust the God who just brought you out of slavery? Rings on your fingers. Or are you going to trust your circumstances? Well, that was one life application in that circumstance. Here's another one. Second life application is there's a time to pray and a time to obey. God heard the cries of the people, and here's what he said to Moses. This is continuing on in Exodus 14. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea, divide the water so the Israelites can walk right through the middle of the sea on dry ground. The Israelites are crying out to him. He's going, quit crying out to me. Just get moving. I brought you here. The cloud led you. I got a plan. I got this. Let's get going. And there's the reason, and that's the reason I chose that wording in the life application. There's a time to pray and a time to obey. Look, if you don't know what to do, you need to pray. Once you know what to do, the right thing to do is get moving. James talks about this in James 1. If you need wisdom, well, then ask our generous God and he'll give it to you. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect they'll receive anything from the Lord. If you don't know what to do, ask God and he'll show you. But once you know what to do, you can quit praying for direction. It's time to pray for backbone. I mean, some of us, we've been praying about stuff for a long time. We knew darn well we needed to start this a year ago. We're just procrastinating. I know I need to forgive someone, but I don't want to. It's not a question of whether you know what to do. It's a question of whether or not you have the courage and the backbone to actually do it. Some of us know we should have started that degree. God's opened up all the opportunities for us. It's right here, but we're afraid we won't be able to make it. So what's holding us back? Fear. Well, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. We read this. He gave us a power, a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. God's telling you something to do, and you're clear on it. Christian friends have verified it. You know what to do. And the right thing to do is to do it. Stop crying out to me, Moses. Extend your rod over the water. I'll make a way and let's go across. And that brings us to point three. That's exactly what God did. He led the Israelites through the Red Sea on dry ground. He made a way where there wasn't any way. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, Exodus 14, 21, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with water, walls of water on each side. John, are you telling me you actually believe this really happened? I do. I do. And there's a life application for you and me out of this. There's no problem we face that's too difficult for God. Oh, there are a lot of problems we face that's too difficult for us. But here's what's so funny. We will fret and worry ourselves to death and try to figure out how we're going to meet this need or overcome this problem and never once even talk to God about it. And we'll talk to 25 friends about it. We'll get online. And why all of a sudden do we put so much confidence in in WebMD? When did that become the all-knowing source for everything? Oh, I've diagnosed this myself, and I know exactly what my problem is. We've gone to all kinds of websites and gotten all this advice And yet, when we sit down and say, well, have we ever talked to the Lord about this? Well, no, I haven't had time. I can watch 500 hours of television. I haven't had any time to talk to God about this and say, God, what do you want me to do? You know, there's no problem. It's too difficult for him. If he can make a way through the middle of the sea so that people can walk across on dry ground, we can bring our problems to him. And that brings us to an important note in your outline We forget this, that the Lord is a warrior who gives his people victory. 
Do you know the Bible describes God as a warrior? Again, not a God who just winds up the earth and lets it spin. He's a God who loves us and wants to be involved in our lives and will let him. He's guiding us. I mean, the pillar of cloud was literally guiding them. He'll guide your life and mine too. He'll fight for us. And that's why these stories are so important for us to remember. All of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and charioteers, they chased the Israelites right into the middle of the sea. Now, what you need to know in between all this, I didn't have time to put the whole chapter in here, that the, the cloud moved from in front of the people after Moses put his rod out over the sea. The cloud moved from in front of the people to behind the people. So the cloud was a wall between the Israelites and the Egyptians. On the Egyptian side, it was pitch black darkness. And even though they came up in their chariots at sundown, they couldn't find anything. They couldn't even see anything. And so the Israelites and the Egyptians were kept separate all night. Meanwhile, on the other side of the cloud, there was light given so the Israelites could walk right through the middle of the sea with those walls of water, dry ground, well lit, better than any street light. And so all night long, they're crossing on dry ground. And then right before dawn, the cloud moves out of the way. And the Egyptians see the pathway through the sea. And they team up, they hitch up their horses, and off they go, right into the middle of the sea. They chase them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down from the cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Please underline that. This is not by Moses. This is not by a theologian. This is by a a sun-worshiping Egyptian chariot driver. The Lord is fighting for them. And he knew more about God and his work and his people's lives than most of us do. We've given up on God long ago. Didn't get the right answer. Didn't get the promotion. Didn't get exactly what I wanted. Ah, chunk him to the curb. I got to handle this to myself. Here's an Egyptian chariot driver saying the Lord is fighting for his people. Do you know the Lord is fighting for you? We'll get to that in a minute. Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. When all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Now raise your hand over the sea again. And then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and their charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. And then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He's hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's given me victory. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Well, now they believe he's a warrior. Underline that. The Lord is a warrior. I mean, I hope you've noticed all through these passages, I'll save you with my righteous right arm. The Lord is fighting for them. The Lord's a warrior. I hope you also notice how fickle the people were. Marching out of Israel, fists raised, collecting all the wealth of Egypt. God's got this. Pharaoh chasing after him. Didn't we tell you we should have stayed as slaves back there? Egyptians are all drowned. The Lord's a warrior. Yeah. Can you say inconsistent? Depending on their circumstances is whether or not they have faith in God. That's why the story is written for us. Come on, y'all. We can do better than this. Only if we're blessed, only then is God a good God. 
Or has he not proven himself over and over again? Paul talks about this in Romans 8, and this brings us to our last life application. You know, we have victory through Jesus. The most important victory over sin and death. Romans 8. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Does it mean, look, look, at this last, look at this sentence here. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death or we break up with our girlfriend or we lose our apartment or we don't get the promotion or the raise or we get a bad diagnosis? Does it mean God doesn't love us anymore? Oh, yeah. The only time God loves you is if everything's going great. He hates you if you ever have trouble in your life. I mean, how ridiculous is that? And maybe God has some big plans in our lives, and maybe he's trying to teach us a thing or two, and maybe once in a while we need to be patient and stop doubting him if everything doesn't turn out exactly the way we thought. Is that what it means, that he no longer loves us? No. This is the Bible. It isn't John Schmidt. Romans 8.35. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Victory through Christ. If you're the old hymn, Victory in Jesus, this is where it came from. Right here. It's Bible. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, fears for today, worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God as revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord is a warrior. He's won the most important battle for us already. He's given us victory over sin and death. God himself, Jesus himself, put, God himself put skin on That's what the idea of Jesus, the Son of God coming to earth. He died a criminal's death on a cross to set us free. Fought the battle of the grave and won. Conquered evil once and for all. You know, history is filled with stories of kings that will order their men to go and die to save the king. The Bible is the only place you're going to find the story where the king of heaven comes down and dies to save his people. The Lord's a warrior. And if he's won that battle for us, why would we hold everything else back from him and not trust him? I mean, you're in a battle for your marriage? Take it to the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. Oh, no, that's what we do. Instead, we try to find places in the Bible where we can quit on our marriage. Hey, show me the verse where it says I can get out easy, where I can find a good lawyer. Yeah, that's the verse I want. We try to find all, all kinds of ways. Well, Lord, where's a verse in the Bible that tells me it's okay to cheat on my ACT test so I can get better, into a better school? Everybody's doing it. Come on, where's the cheating verse? You understand. And so we'll spend all our time trying to figure out ways to not obey God and trust Him. And the Lord just says, just trust me. My arm has not lost its strength. I can do things you could never dream of. I did not give you a spirit of fear. I did not. I want you to have a sound mind. I want you to trust what you know to be true instead of your circumstances. 
And that's why we read the stories. That's why we need to know about the Exodus. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for these stories. They're not old fables made up for kids to learn in Sunday school, but they have nothing to do with real life. They are true stories. And one day in heaven, we will meet Moses. And he will tell us the story we will hear from his own lips, I'm sure, of how you rescued him. And maybe he'll teach us that song, how the horse and rider were thrown into the sea. I hope so. I want to know the tune. And Father, I just pray for forgiveness for so many times when I have been so afraid. You have done amazing things for me. You've answered prayer after prayer. You've made provision after provision. And yet, Lord, I have doubted you when the next scary circumstance comes in my life. In a moment of silence, right now, would you just confess to the Lord and say, God, I need backbone to trust you. Help me not be a coward. Help me to believe what I say I believe. And if you need direction about a major decision in your life, pray about that right now too and say, God, please give me direction. Lead me just like you led the Israelites. Make it so clear that I know exactly where to go. And when you show me, Lord, then help me not waver, but be a man of faith, a woman of faith. Help me be a person of faith, Lord, to trust you more than my circumstances. You know, God, I just pray that we will be people who call upon your name. I pray that you'll remember us, that you give us victory through Jesus. Oh, Lord, you're a warrior. And you fight for your people. Forgive me for the times I doubt that. Help me to remember you on Tuesday when times are hard. Help me to remember you at work, to call upon you there. Help me to remember you. Thank you for the story of Moses. Thank you that the Red Sea was parted and the Israelites walked across on dry ground. You can make a way when there is no way. And you can turn a dead end into a way into the promised land. Thank you, Lord, for these stories. Thank you for Jesus who won the victory for us and has given us a way to heaven. Help us to trust him and to follow him. We pray these things in his strong and mighty name. Amen.